0: Tantamount, Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, The Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18.
1: Hello, this is Blaine Pardo.
2: And this is Victoria Hester. Welcome to Episode 2 of Tantamount, Body Count.
1: In our first episode, we explored our fascination with these cases and started with the first of these murders. In this episode, we will dive into the other victims. I will warn you, it can be complicated. There are a lot of similarities between these victims, and even for us, it can be confusing at times. That is good. You're going to experience exactly what the families of the victims, the police, and the public struggled through as well. Ten weeks had passed since the death of Carol Spinks. Ten weeks for her killer to cool off, for the freeway phantom to mentally fantasize about the acts he had committed. After ten weeks, it wasn't enough for the killer. He wanted more. He wanted to recreate the experience he had had with his first victim. The memories alone were not enough, so the freeway phantom went on the prowl again.
2: Darlenea Denise Johnson lived in Anacostia, a suburb of Washington, D.C. She was 16 years old and had a part-time job at the Oxon Hill Recreation Center, which was near her home. On July 8, 1971, Darlenea told her mother that there was going to be a sleepover at the rec center where she had worked, so she wouldn't be home that night. What her mother didn't know is that she never showed up to work between 10 and 10.30 that morning. With the overnight stay planned, she went missing for a long period of time before her mother, Helen McNeil, even knew about it. When police did finally begin to look for her, Darlene's friends told them that sometimes she used the excuse of a sleepover at the rec center as a cover for her to see her boyfriend. The problem was that her boyfriend had not seen her either. It was as if she had disappeared in broad daylight right off of the busy Washington, D.C. streets.
1: What followed was a debacle on the part of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department. On July 12th, four days after she went missing, a D.C. Department of Highways and Traffic employee called and said he had seen the body of a fully clothed dead girl along I-295 in the district. The police drove along the road, but never got out to look, and they never saw the body. Another week went by before the employee called an officer that he knew, Sergeant Charles Baden, and told him that he was angry that the police had never attended the young girl's body alongside the highway. On July 19th, Baden directed officers to the site and the remains of Darlene Johnson had been found, though at this time it was impossible to know for sure. Remember, This was a hot, steamy July in Washington, D.C., and her body had been exposed to the elements for possibly as many as 11 days. One of the former detectives, Romaine Jenkins, showed us a photograph of the body, and we found that it was incredibly chilling. How would you describe it, Victoria?
2: Mummified is the only word that applies. When I'm not writing books, I'm a director of nursing, and I can tell you, other than the clothing, there was no way to tell that this victim was even female, let alone identify her identity. The environment and the elements took a toll on her remains. I cannot imagine how the family felt, knowing that the police had left their daughter along the highway for all that time. Getting physical or trace evidence off the body was nearly impossible with the techniques used by the investigators in 1971. That exposure to the elements worked to the killer's advantage. If he had left any evidence behind, it was long lost or destroyed. What is also important to note is where the body was found. It wasn't just a long eye 295. It was only 15 feet from where Carol Spinks' body had been left. Today, we understand a serial killer and take a lot for granted. We know that serial killers go back to the scenes of their crimes. This was 1971, however. This was just an important piece of the puzzle, but one that seemed to elude investigators at the time.
1: Just to identify Darlene was difficult. The medical examiner had to remove one of her fingers to get a fingerprint. Her mother was able to identify her daughter, not on the fingerprint, but by the clothing that was on the body. When Darlene was found, she was wearing her blue shorts, a green sweater, a blue blouse, and a red, white, and blue horizontal striped miniskirt. This is what she had left home with. One of her brown loafer shoes was missing. This is important because it'll come up later, so it's worth noting here. They found some negroid hairs on her sweater, shorts, underwear, and barrettes. Blood was found under her fingernails, but it was too small of a quantity to test. Today, that material would have yielded DNA that could have provided police with a way to positively identify the killer. There wasn't a lot for the investigators to work with, however, in 1971.
0: The
2: police did have one viable lead. A young man named Alfred Holmes was allegedly, and I stress this word, seen with Darlenia on July 8th in the late evening. Holmes claimed that the allegation was incorrect. He even submitted to sodium pentanol test and passed. While these tests are fairly unreliable, I mean you can't use them in court reliable, it was enough to convince authorities that Holmes was not the killer. Unfortunately, that left the police with very little to go on once he was cleared. On July 11th, in the middle of the Darlene Johnson investigation, another young girl, Angela Denise Barnes, was killed. For novices investigating the Freeway Phantom, her death is one that gets lumped in with the others, despite the fact that she had been shot in the head. She often appears on lists of the Phantom's victims, despite the fact that her killers were found and prosecuted. We will talk about her case a little bit later, but it's also important to note because at this stage, you do have three young dead black girls in D.C. in a very short period of time. Needless to say, the African-American community was outraged that the police were seeming to have little progress in these cases. Calvin Rolark, the editor of the Washington Informer, put it this way. If it was a blue-eyed white girl from Silver Spring, her picture would have been all over page one. We are demanding from the police the same kind of services you get in Georgetown. Now it takes three or four and sometimes six hours before police respond. If they won't protect us, we'll have to protect ourselves by forming
1: vigilantes. So now you have two victims of the Phantom, Carol Spanks and Darlene Johnson. If you're the Freeway Phantom you know from the press that the police were at a dead end. Despite you leaving Darlene's body right where Carol's was found, they are still not connecting the dots that you are giving them. You know what that does to you? It makes you bolder. You feel empowered. You feel the need to strike again. Ten-year-old Brenda Ferry Crockett was an energetic young girl who attended Harrison Elementary School in the district. On the evening of July 27, 1971, Brenda had been out playing with her brothers and sisters at an open fire hydrant. Remember, it's 1971. Air conditioning was considered a pretty expensive luxury. Her mother, Retha, asked Brenda to go to the Safeway store at 14th and U Streets to pick up some typing paper and dog food. It was around 8 o'clock p.m., and it was still daylight. Her mother assumed Brenda had taken one of her siblings with her, as she had always done before. Thirty minutes later, when the kids came in, Brenda's mother asked where Brenda was and had learned that she had gone all alone to the store. Her mother set out to the store to find her daughter, but didn't. She found a police officer, but he told her it wasn't his beat, so he didn't assist. Brenda was not at the store or anywhere along the street between there and
2: her home. This is where the story takes into the bazaar, at least for me. While her mother is out looking for her, the phone rings at the Crockett house at around 9.40 p.m. Brenda's sister, Bertha, picks it up and it's Brenda on the other line. Brenda tells her sister that a white man had picked her up near the Safeway and had taken her to Virginia. She said she would return home by a taxi. Bertha said that her older sister was crying a little bit on the phone. Five minutes later, the phone rings again. This time, Theodore Cadwell, a friend of the family, takes the call. Cadwell said that he had heard Brenda whimpering on the other line. She told him that she had been picked up by a white man, taken to his home in Virginia, and he was sending her home in a cab. She then asks if her mother had seen her. I think this is important, and I think you do too, Dad. Cadwell asked Brenda to put the man she was with on the phone, but she said he was outside. Cadwell reported hearing movement in the background, footfalls on the floor, and the call abruptly disconnected after Brenda said, Well, I'll see you. Her voice was oddly calm given what she had relayed. The phone call ended with a disconnect, not a hang-up. It was as if the other line had been cut off. The Crockett family informed the police of the calls. Today, with caller ID and much more sophisticated network, the call would have been traceable, but not in 1971.
1: That call actually gave investigators a great deal. First off, the reference to a white man in Virginia are efforts by the Freeway Phantom to throw off investigators. If you had kidnapped someone and had them call home, you wouldn't let them give out actual usable clues to your family. To me, this means that the killer is in D.C. or Maryland, not Virginia. He is not a white man either. Also, the call couldn't have been made from a payphone. Mr. Cadwell heard footsteps, so she called from within the killer's house. He left her alone to make the call so he was confident that no matter what, she couldn't get away. Chances are, he was close, listening in on the call. Also, why have her make the call in the first place? That is revealed in the second conversation. Brenda asks if her mother had seen her. In other words, the killer must have seen Mrs. Crockett or was worried that she could identify his vehicle or had Mrs. Crockett seen her in the car with him. The phantom was scared. This also means that Mrs. Crockett either knew the killer by sight or was very close to seeing her daughter that night. For all the killer knew, Mrs. Crockett was with police giving a description of him and his vehicle to him at the time.
2: I agree. I agree. Brenda was found around 5 a.m. the next morning. Donald Ray Carter, a 24-year-old from Alexandria, Virginia, was hitchhiking along Route 50, the John Hansen Highway, in Prince George's County, Maryland, just over the border with the District of Columbia. She was found five feet from the curb lying face down. Brenda was small, only four foot eight. Some newspaper reports from the time claimed that all the girls looked older, but that was not the case with Brenda. She looked like a 10-year-old. Maybe after the struggle with Darlene Johnson, he wanted a victim he could more easily control. Her shoes were missing, but she was still wearing her blue and white blouse. She still had some of her pink plastic curlers in her hair. She had been seen barefoot by a neighbor earlier that day, She had been strangled earlier that day, either manually or with a scarf that was tightly tied around her neck. The medical examiner said that she had been dead for five to six hours before her body was found. I think this tells us that the killer was still worried that he had been spotted and wanted to be physically removed from his victim. Remember, with Carol Spinks, he had held her for days as a captive. With Brenda Crockett, he wanted separation as quickly as possible. Look at the timeline. She disappears after 8 p.m. We know she is alive at 9.45 because of the phone calls she made to her home. She is killed around midnight and her body is found at 5 a.m. If he was from Virginia, which I don't believe,
1: neither do I,
2: the killer would have had spent a large chunk of his time with just her in his car. Her body was dropped off in Maryland, too, on the opposite side of the district from Virginia. The timeline alone almost makes the whole Virginia angle nothing more than deception. Brenda had been raped. There were ring-like contusions around her nipples suggesting she had been bitten there. She had a contusion on the left side of her scalp. She had put up some sort of fight or resistance. Green rayon fibers were found on her blouse, in her shorts, and in her underwear. These would eventually be identified as being identical to the fibers found on Carol Spinks, a direct physical link between the two victims.
1: It is significant that the killer did not leave the body along I-295 this time. This time, he leaves the victim's remains in Maryland. Why? Was he attempting to intentionally muddy the investigation by involving another jurisdiction? For some reason, was it impossible for him to leave the body along I-295? It either makes him sound very cunning or simply desperate to get rid of the body wherever he could. Well, once more, the freeway phantom now enters another cooling-off period. He doesn't re-emerge until October 1, 1971. Nina Moesha Yates was a 12-year-old 6th grade student attending the Kelly Miller Jr. High. She was a kid on the go, either riding her bike or roller skating. Nino, as she is known by her friends, lived on Benning Road in Congress Heights. It was a lower-to-middle-class neighborhood, tight, close-knit. Her parents were divorced, and her stepmother was about to give birth to her new sister. Around 7 o'clock p.m., she had been sent to the Safeway store on Benning Road with a $5 bill to pick up paper plates, sugar, and flour. The clerk remembered ringing her up for the sale, and when she left the store, she never returned. At 8.45 p.m., a 15-year-old hitchhiker spotted her body in the eastbound grassy area of Pennsylvania Avenue, just three-tenths of a mile into Prince George's County. It had been raining periodically that night, but the grass under her was dry, letting authorities know that she had only been there a short time. Chances are, the hitchhiker had just narrowly missed seeing her killer.
2: Next to her body was a brown loafer. Remember, we said that this was important. Darlene Johnson was found missing a brown loafer. Was this something that the killer had found in his car when he was depositing her body? Was it a way of showing the police that the crimes were actually linked? We could find nothing in the files we obtained that positively identified it to Darlenea Johnson, but it does stand out. Her autopsy showed that she had died from manual and ligature strangulation. I've seen her photos. She has fingernail marks on her neck. She had been raped. Negroid hairs were recovered from her underwear, the sanitary napkin that she had, her sweatshirt, and her jeans. She had the same green synthetic fibers found on her body as well. She had just started her first period and the napkin was not put on correctly, which indicated that she had likely been dead and redressed by her killer. The medical examiner report indicates that semen was recovered from the sanitary napkin. Again, this would be critical DNA evidence that could potentially be used today to identify her killer. Investigators did find the groceries she had purchased in the 1900 block of Benning Road. This was an indication of where she had been abducted by the Phantom. A narrow tire track was found near her body, likely from a Volkswagen Beetle. One witness claimed to have seen her being put into a Beetle along Benning Road, a Beetle with Maryland tags. In the 1970s, that car was very popular. The police searched for possible suspect Volkswagens, but had far too many to narrow it down. Like Brenda Crockett, the killer did not spend much time with Nino. He was becoming brutally efficient. Also, once more, he had left a body in Prince George's County.
1: So at this stage, in early October of 1971, we have four victims of the same killer. Three of them can be directly linked by physical evidence, the mysterious synthetic green rayon fibers. The Freeway Phantom is getting more skilled in his methods. He has, either deliberately or accidentally, gotten another agency involved in the case, and whenever that happens, it rarely makes things more effective for law enforcement. He has gotten more brazen, letting one of his victims actually call home twice. episode of Tantamount. The freeway phantom's string of grisly murders continues to haunt Washington, D.C. Three more victims fall prey to him as the Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County Police struggle to apprehend the serial killer. Even more bizarre, the killer leaves a note for the authorities taunting them. Join us for episode three, Catch Me If You Can.
0: Phantom Mount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at Tentamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.